One of my favorite lines from the book, you know, only eating for biological reasons is like only having sex for procreation. <laughs> it's just this like weird, moralistic, puritanical uh, connections to food that we think it's like food freedom. But, uh, not really. Welcome to Didn't I Just Feed You, a podcast about feeding kids. Hey, I'm Megan. And I'm Stacy. If you guys would like to support the podcast right now, how about leaving a rating or a review wherever you listen? That's easy, right? You should do that. Or you can even share a favorite episode with a friend. Maybe this episode, because it's such a good one. I can't wait to get into it. These things really do help grow our Didn't I Just Feed You audience. And if you're feeling extra generous and like you can subscribe to our bonus episode feed on Apple Podcasts or join as a super fan, you can do that by visiting didn'tijustfeedyou.com backslash community. But you know, it's cool if you can't. We understand. Yeah, you can also join our free community there. Um, That community shares their weekly meal plans. They ask cooking questions. They get direct access to us too. And who wouldn't Uh, want that? (laughs) (laughs) I uh, recently listened to an older episode of the podcast, like episode 54. And it was funny because we were talking about the difference between rating and reviews and like, we had the old Facebook community and like we were talking about how we we had like 34 reviews at that time. And I don't oh, know. It just made us, reviews. That's it, cute. Yeah. It made me really proud of us. Like we were excited that we had 134 ratings and 34 reviews. And now we're like, well, beyond that. And we'll soon be celebrating five years. Oh, my gosh. Five years and leaving Facebook, which was great. <laughs> For our Kajabi community. I know it was hard for some people, but I feel really good about that move. I do too. And it continues to grow and continues to just be this really wonderful and robust place. I couldn't agree more. Today, we're joined by Jessica Wilson, she, her, who is a clinical dietitian and author of It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies. We asked Jessica about diet culture as it relates to feeding ourselves and our own journeys. I know Stacey hates when I use that word. <laughs> I don't know. Our, of like movement, uh, our relationship to our bodies and also our kids and their relationship to food and their bodies. But we also talk about race and social justice too, which feels like a very important conversation. Yes, very much. We're both big fans of Jessica's work. So how did you find Jessica? Did we find her together? I've been following her on Instagram for a while. I want to say it was 2020, but of course I want to be like, but it was before um, June 2020 when we had this like big racial reckoning and everyone was just following black creators. But it might have also been during that time, if I'm really frank. Although I feel like it came up through Kitchen and that's how I found her. And we or you introduced me to her in like the early part of 2020. So it's been at least three years. I just love her so much. And she wrote a book. So we were like, we actually, we tried to get Jessica on the show a while ago. And she was like, ladies, I'm busy. I'm in the middle of writing a book, which is obviously totally legit and something that we can relate to and understand. So as soon as we saw that her book was publishing, we were like, hi again, (laughs) it's us. Um, So I was very honored that she came back on. Uh, especially because the book is as good a read as I anticipated it would be. Yeah, I loved it. I listened to it. You know, my thing right now is I did audio. Well, I did both, actually. Oh, okay. But yes, I listened to most of it, 
And then I went back and I like highlighted through the printed version. Yes. I love when an author reads or narrates their book on the audiobook. I feel like it gives totally. you just such like this wonderful connection to what's being shared. I want to say this is not a negative. I think this is actually a positive for the book. I think um, when many people see the title, especially if they're a white woman, they might be like, is this book for me? Is yeah. this book going to be heavy? I thought given the context of Jessica's work, that it might be like very data heavy talking about like mm-hmm. diet and, and particularly with the lens of race. And it wasn't that I was surprised by that at first, but then I, I actually really enjoyed that. It's more personal anecdotal. She talks about her work obviously, and like gives case studies that are real world, but it's not like you're listening or reading tons of numbers that, that are heavy or hard to listen to. Yeah. I mean, she tells the human stories behind these issues, which for me really helps bring the issues, the challenges, my place in the issues and the challenges to life in a way that's very compelling and meaningful. Also, if you follow her on Instagram, you get these little, you know, reels, the maximum number of minutes you can make a reel is two minutes, right? Yep. But they're two minutes. So she'll touch on these like hot button issues, like the internet completely freaking melting down because Lizzo goes onto TikTok and is like, you guys, I'm on a juice smoothie cleanse or I'm drinking smoothies. And everyone's like, what? And you'll just get her hot take. And like in the book, because she focused on anecdotes and real world stories and interactions that she's had, she got to dig deeper into a lot of the stuff that she shared on Instagram. And that was extremely satisfying for me. So I found it like a really compelling, powerful, quick read that I really loved. Yes, it went so fast. I was like, wait, this is over. Uh, I was a little bit disappointed. I did, <laughs> did want to ask Jessica if she'll write another book. But as a teaser to our conversation with Jessica, we do, I mentioned we talk about race, we talk about di- anti-diet, but we do also address the American Association of Pediatrics new BMI yes. guidelines at the very end of our conversation. So definitely want to listen through the whole thing. To hear what Jessica has to say. Do we want to get into it, Billis? Do you want to introduce Jessica? Of course we do. Jessica Wilson is a clinical dietitian, consultant, and author of It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies. Her experiences navigating the dietetic fields as a Black queer dietitian have been featured on primetime news, public radio shows, and in print media. Jessica has worked as a trauma-informed clinical dietitian since 2007 and believes that her clients' lived experiences can be more important to their care than what is considered to be, quote, best practice. She speaks openly and candidly about the harm caused to our patients by designing individual identities as risk factors rather than targeting the structural inequities and violence that marginalized individuals must endure. Jessica, welcome to the show. Jessica, one of the takeaways that both Megan and I walked away with from your book is that the anti-diet movement is, I don't know, I'm going to put the word distraction on it, is a distraction from all of us really understanding the structures and systems of oppression that we personally feel like demand our attention. 
And we'd love to set the stage for our conversation by talking about this more. Um, you really, I want people to buy your book. Your book is really fantastic, powerful, and important read. But maybe just sort of like set the stage for us and then people can dig deeper when they buy your book. That's a tall task to just slightly set the it stage. Um, I'll start with the distraction because people are probably holding on to that word and wondering what mm. the heck you're talking about. I talk about diet culture as like a simple you know, solution to, you know, structural and societal problems. Like the more we focus on just that people want to be thin in our society because thinness, you know, is valued and that it's just about your body size. Um, and then, you know, once you feel comfortable and are no longer listening to diet culture, then your life improves and you get so much back. Uh, Cause that is, you know, a lot of the topics out there. We have a lot of size 10 or so like white women who are like, now I'm able to eat pizza again. <laughs> I feel great. I'm like, no, 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 no. This this is not the radical change that we need. Mm, cheeseburgers. <laughs> Yay, I feel so comfortable. Yay. <laughs> That's not the goal. So there are centuries worth of systems and beliefs that have landed us in 2023 and how you know our bodies are viewed and not even just how we think about our own bodies but the messages that we get about our bodies so i always say for you know fat folks folks of color queer and trans folks like we can feel great about our bodies and we can reject diet culture all we want you know in our heads but our bodies still have to be outside like we still have to go outside where people are you know policing ourselves where people are judging us so you know, similarly to body positivity, like the individual, you know, thoughts don't really matter as much when we have to interact with white supremacy, capitalism, you know, classism and all that stuff. Given that, is it adequate to acknowledge that body positivity is not body liberation or is body positivity and engaging in these conversations that we're having about anti-diet and intuitive eating actually harmful? And how does that connect to social justice that makes everyone feel com more comfortable in their body? So I think of body positivity and what I've gathered from most people is that it was like the first jump into body liberation work and fat liberation work uh, because it sounds nice, right? <laughs> like this positivity that I just would like to feel about my own body. But again, you know, it is that individual work and solution to a societal problem. And again, you know, it's going to be really okay for people, white women who are like size 10 or 12, to think themselves into feeling fine about their bodies because they're, you know, still able to get on planes, still able to find clothes, still, you know, able to get jobs without experiencing the same, you know, strict anti-fatness that other folks are. And does it do harm? I would say that when we stay in like a let's be positive about these things, you know, it's like the toxic positivity. It asks the individual to do the work. I would say it's not enough. I like to think or I think of things like intuitive eating to just be a bit more inherently harmful because with body positivity, that is with thoughts. Um, with intuitive eating, it comes from a very structural place sometimes, like dietitians, clinicians, therapists can be, you know, very much pushing intuitive eating and both body positivity and intuitive eating can really gaslight experiences. 
So, you know, my therapist say, uh, is telling me to be, you know, to think better about my body. And that's really the problem is that I just don't believe that my body is a good body or whatever it is when society is actually, you know, the one telling me that my body is not okay. Um, and then intuitive eating also completely disregards, you know, the access to food, the access to being able to like feel hungry and just so many other you know, situations that make intuitive eating like a silly and really a dogma for a lot of clinicians who are strongly intuitive eating only. I've struggled with understanding intuitive eating. I've been a little bit rebellious about it. There's an appeal to it, but I'm like, something doesn't feel right to me. I think that comes from having had PCOS diagnosis And then like other people being like, no, you don't have PCOS. Yes, you do have PCOS. (laughs) Like I've had four different conflicting uh, diagnoses around PCOS. But I'm like, well, what if I don't know when I'm hungry? What if I don't know if this craving, like I don't. And in the book, you outline all of these very practical situations where you're like, this is why just eating when you're hungry makes no sense. Because Mm -hmm. if this is your lunch break and you ate a late breakfast, maybe you're not hungry. So what do you do? Do you eat? Do you not eat? What if you won't be able to eat for six more hours? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was really like so practical and simple, but I was like, "Uh, yeah, (laughs) like what if there's no answer for it? And it just actually makes you feel more I don't know. This is how I feel. This is not really the right word for it, but it makes you feel more mental, like in your head about food than you did in the first place. Yeah. The overthinking. What is intuitive? Like, (laughs) when am I being intuitive when I'm not being intuitive? I'm supposed to be intuitive. I should only eat at this hunger, you know, level. If I'm not really this hungry, I shouldn't eat. I should only eat till I'm this full. Like, all of these. Yes. What does that mean? I don't know. And just the privilege that it takes to be able to eat yes. just when you're hungry and just till it's right, you know, that mm-hmm. that comes with, you know, a time freedom, a financial freedom, uh, you know, a ton of things. Not to mention that, like, we're so disconnected from our intuition culturally through all the other messaging that we get. We don't even know how to listen to ourselves. I I loved you breaking down intuitive eating in your book because I like started at that place when I was trying to disconnect myself from growing up in diet culture and my like negative feelings about my body and um, some binge eating disorder that I was dealing with. And what really struck me is like it is still a diet. If you have rules around eating, if there's like a 10 point plan for how you're going to feed yourself, that's still a diet. And so it's wild to me that like the anti-diet and body positivity community still holds that up on high. And I can't help but like listen to your book and think, well, that's easy because it's two white women who seem to be have an authority and they have all the privileges. I mean, very much the privileges that Stacey and I have. So like then it becomes very obvious why that is the 
the mode of eating because we don't want to call it a diet, right? right? They don't want to call it a diet that we put on high in those communities. Yeah, and people really don't talk about how like the ultimate goal of intuitive eating is eating less. So if you're only eating when you're hungry, you're eating less. If you're only eating to when you're full, you're eating less. If you're never eating, you know, for emotional or feeling reasons, you're eating less. If you make peace with the food police and, you know, feel that all foods are neutral, you're not going to ever, quote, overeat one of them because it's perfect for you and you have a perfect relationship with it. And just on and on, uh, like all of these ways that in the end, you're like, oh, really, the goal is to eat less with intuitive eating. Why is that everyone's goal? It makes me yeah. so angry. <laughs> yeah. Why is that the goal? Why do we have to eat less? <laughs> And why aren't people talking more about the fact that eating is brings joy and brings a, literally a good physical feeling and mm -hmm. gives you a little like dopamine <laughs> when you eat that food that you love? It's very frustrating. It is. And, you know, a lot of people will probably a lot of your listeners are going to be like, Jessica, <laughs> what are you doing? Why are you critiquing this thing? Um, I get the most strong reactions from people who've like found this to be really helpful um, in their path. And as you can imagine, most of those folks look the same um, and have the same privileges. And so that's why it works for a lot of people uh, who are finding, you know, some sort of safety and principles and like a way to eat and find it accessible. But yeah, the overthinking, the so many other restraints. One of my, you know, favorite lines from the book, you know, only eating for biological reasons. This is like only having sex for procreation. <laughs> like it's just this like weird moralistic, like puritanical uh, connections to food that we think it's like food freedom. And I'm like, uh, not really. Yeah. Yeah. Also so unrealistic. Yeah. So we talk about feeding families and Megan and I have indulged in these conversations about ourselves on the mics before, but I also want to think about it from a parenting point of view. And I know as a mm -hmm. clinician, you have a background in treating eating disorders. It's just so tough raising kids in this culture. It's in mm -hmm. the air that they breathe, you know, like they don't even know because it's like a fish knowing it's in water. It's just all around them. And so much of what we do at home feels like it. I know it has some sort of impact, but it feels like it doesn't. And that's very scary. As parents, I think we recognize that we cannot protect our children from the body violence that our culture and white supremacy inflicts on them. But do you have thoughts on how we can engage in harm reduction? Or is there more that we can do? Am I being too pessimistic? Is there more than just harm <laughs> reduction? I mean, right. That all depends on like resources and time. And yes, too, right. And you really never know is what I will say, like what sticks with your kiddos and what doesn't. I will say in my experience, when it's been super clear that, you know, something growing up has made a direct impact is, you know, like the grandparent who you may visit just twice a year, but is always commenting on their weight or on your kid's weight. You'll think it's like, oh, only two days out of 365. But, you know, they show up their freshman year and, you know, they're talking to me about how that just, you know, led them to a path. And you'd be like, but it wasn't every day. I'm like, I know. So there's things that people... I've seen to be helpful is like providing the counter programming. <laughs> I think uh, something that we 
will think is helpful, you know, is like telling kids that their bodies are great. And I will say that that is something that sticks with kids. That only works as far as like how, you know, parents, you know, view their own bodies because kids are like sponges. They yeah. totally pick up if you're telling Oof, me my body's yeah. great. <laughs> like you're like, Ugh. <laughs> um, I can tell that you're not either feeling great or like making comments with your friends about stuff. So yeah, there's no like perfect person out there. But I, I think about my upbringing and my mom was weird, diety stuff. Uh, but my dad was like 1000% the opposite. I remember like being very, very young and thinking I was an only child and my dad was like my sibling and way older than me. But like <laughs> me thinking that I was like grown up and like cool when mm-hmm. I could fit like a whole Ritz cracker in my mouth like he could. <laughs> And let me tell you, when I got to like that whole orange like slice, that was like big <laughs> time. And then the whole Oreo, like do I eat <laughs> like that now? No, but like that, you know, so like the food messaging there um, and he wouldn't eat during the day because he, you know, is like his own boat mechanic and own business. He said. So we'd come home and eat like a gazillion peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and then still have dinner with us. And like never was there a comment about anybody stuff or weird stuff i also remember being a chubby kid and this is like a parent memory for sure there's only so much you can do when we were learning about averages and like age 10 or grade five i don't know mm-hmm. one of the like let's see the average of the class and like go around and like everybody had to tell their weight oh my god <laughs> i remember so clearly that like this is a formative mess like moment in my life like, yeah. i remember like exactly the class I, I think I was one of the only people to say, like, I don't know. But I did know, having been, like, a child whose body was being monitored for my weight when I was young, like, closely monitored because, like, my body was the problem. And, yeah, so I definitely weighed the most out of everyone in that class. And, like, it stuck with me. And then I go home and I don't know if my dad actually asked if I was having a bad day, but I must have because then I told him, you know, this happened in class today and this is how much I weigh. And he turns to me and he says, oh, that seems like a normal amount to weigh for a 10-year-old. And just like this random, like, of course he doesn't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, he thinks it's fine because whatever. Um, he's like, yeah, that seems like a normal amount. And like, I remember like those moments for sure. It wasn't like, you should think great. It was just like, that's okay. And just being chill about those things yeah. was great when like everybody's being so hyper aware of my weight in the doctor's office and stuff like that. Did you feel like he was being just authentic? like he really was like, that really does yeah. just sound like, <laughs> wait, that's fine. Like he that's wasn't trying normal. to like make you feel better. No. Right. Yeah. Like, take yes, there wasn't, it was just, there wasn't a pep talk. It was like, yeah, that's not normal. Yeah. I was like, oh, I guess it really is because you've just moved on and haven't made it a thing. What resonates for me is like, we think we're in this generation where we're trying to repair all the diet culture that was inflicted on us. I mm-hmm. I grew up in the 90s. My mom was always on a diet. What she, she talked about it. She talked about how she didn't like her body. She talked about like she ate differently than us. Yeah. All of that. There was like her own pantry stuff a lot of the times. The cabbage soup diet was very traumatic <laughs> to me as a tween. Um, <laughs> 
not like because I was on it, but because she was. So I feel myself a lot with my daughter, who's actually in fifth grade now and studying averages, like being like, oh, when she makes comments about her body, feeling like I have to be like, oh, no, but like, you're so great and you're so strong rather than like what your dad did was very much like just normalizing it, like not making a big deal about your weight or your body. And treating it like it's just what it is, which is the truth. Mm-hmm. But Megan, you have to believe it. Like her father just believed like that. I do think that they there's a little bit like they can tell, not just from the way we say it. It's not just what her dad said, but from the way we eat, from the way we talk. I mean, Jessica already said it from the little things that they hear us say to our friends or the thing that like they might hear when we grumble, when we pull up our jeans kids are very on it. So it's, I find it to be a challenge to be authentic because Mm. I think that's what really makes the impact. And I've said it here before. I might as well say it again. It's not authentic. Like I'm not, I haven't made peace with my body yet. So it's very intimidating to me to try to raise children who Mm -hmm. I desperately want to be at peace with their body. I mean, we have said about this very podcast Like we have a line that we'll say over and over. It's not about your child eating kale and quinoa. It's about making sure that they develop a healthy relationship with food because that's the most important thing for them. That's the healthiest thing moving forward. But when they know that that isn't what it is for us in our own relationship with our bodies and food, I think it can be tough. Definitely agree. And I really like what you said about the authenticity in that. I talk a bit about that in the context of respectability in the book. And um, so I'll, you know, share a bit right now about how black women and other folks, fat folks can, you know, engage in respectability politics to, you know, what we think is, you know, just like making ourselves more palatable. Um, so say straightening our hair, making sure not to, you know, speak a certain way or, you know, never having blonde hair is, you know, my dad's older or friend would say in the fifties for, (laughs) there's a myriad of examples, but just being sure, you know, to behave, um, Mm -hmm. And the ways that it was talked about was just like making yourself smaller without any context. Like it was never with the, you know, conversation about like, this is how trash society is and white supremacy acts. And, you know, if you do these things, you, you know, might be a bit safer, but really it's still going to be trash. It was always just like, don't show, you know, your legs, don't do this, like, you know, without ever any context. So it was never like a choice. So really now only in this moment, I'm thinking about parents and how to have like authentic conversations about body stuff in a way that doesn't like put anything on the child, but just like, this is how trash you know, society is. And it's not your fault and it's not my fault, but like, this is real in a way that makes it not even neutral, but just like a fact. Like, yeah. I don't expect you to do anything. I've struggled with this. I have two boys. I I think I mentioned they're 13 and 16. And um, I was really worried. One is really, really thin, but also an athlete and protein. And then as he becomes a teenager, like body image, there's just a lot swirling around. Um, I grew up with a very extremely restrictive mother who literally said, this wasn't just like unspoken, like literally said, you'd be perfect if you just lost 10 pounds, like on the regular. So, you know, there's a lot just in the air 
for me. (laughs) And I feel like recently, now that they're older and we just have different kinds of conversations and I feel like, and perhaps I could have done this when they were younger. I don't know, but it's just a personal development as a parent for me. I just feel like I can be more myself and not always be in parenting mode and trying to be a good parent and do the right thing. We've had some conversations about, you know, fat phobia and their reactions to things that happen with celebrities. You know, you point out a couple of instances. These weren't conversations in my house, but, you know, Lizzo talking about being on a cleanse and like it's big reactions. And my kids are, well, the older one, not the younger, is on social media. So he becomes aware of these things. And just being able to talk about it and say, I even cried recently in a conversation because he was like, that's not real oppression. I don't know. He had some big reaction to me talking about fat phobia and I got really emotional about it. And I felt like this conversation, me getting to just be real with him about how it feels for me and who I am and the impact on me and what I think it means for the world and what worries me and has been the best conversation I've had towards giving him, I don't know if he's not looking for food freedom, but, you know, giving him a sense of liberation around food and also a context for understanding that it's more than just you feeling good in your body, that this is a matter of social justice for a lot of people because not everyone gets to feel good in their body. Yeah. So uh, that really resonates with me, just like being honest about your struggles instead of trying to pretend like, which is what I did when they were little, like, you're great and I'm great and I feel (laughs) good. And don't you feel good? I just want you to feel good (laughs) because that's just not real. Twenty twenty four is the year we're focused on finally reducing dinner time overwhelm at Didn't I Just Feed You? And that means making grocery shopping easier and more cost effective, especially when it comes to the foods we all tend to spend the most on, like meat. Enter Butcherbox, where you can count on incredible deals on premium cuts. At Butcherbox, you can choose a curated box or customize your order of one hundred percent grass fed beef, free range organic chicken, pork raised crate free, and wild caught seafood to stock your fridge with all the proteins you need for the week, month, or even the year at prices that are hard to come by at the grocery store. That's all your protein shopped for in one shot at great prices delivered to your door with free shipping. Just one change, switching over to ButcherBox, and you guarantee yourself fewer trips to the grocery store and savings that are hard to find at the supermarket. Dinnertime overwhelm be gone. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of a weeknight meal essential, three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y and use the code D-I-J-F-Y, short for Didn't I Just Feed You, to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, Build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. Is anyone else struggling with what to wear these days? I've been pretty frustrated with getting dressed over the last few months as I've navigated body changes, and some days I quite literally have no idea what to wear. Enter Armoire. 
Armoire allows you to rent high-quality designer clothing for every occasion. When I signed up, I took a style quiz, and based on my preferences, they offered suggestions that would best match my life. I've been renting clothes from Armoire for a while now, and the more I rent, the more on point the suggestions get. Plus, you send what you wear back, which is a great way to try new styles without waste. Armoire also has such a fantastic range of options. Whether you're planning an outfit for a date night, packing for a conference, or maybe a family event, or just need some updated options for everyday life, you'll be the best-dressed person in the room without ever having to find time for an exhausting shopping day. Right now, Didn't I Just Feed You listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash D-I-J-F-Y. That is armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash D-I-J-F-Y to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. Do you ever feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of snacks and meals? We get it. That's why we're excited to share Home Threads, the ultimate solution for creating a stylish and functional family space. At HomeThreads.com, discover furniture that can handle the chaos of family life. From wipeable dining chairs to kitchen tables and light fixtures. Or you can just freshen up your kitchen with trays, counter lamps, decor, and other affordable accents that will help you update your kitchen into a room you love spending time in. Head over to homethreads.com slash D-I-J-F-Y, short for Dinner and I Just Feed You, to get a code for 15% off your first order. Because if you're going to be feeding them three times a day, plus snacks, you deserve a home that feeds your style. Home Threads, love where you live. That's homethreads.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y today to get 15% off your first order. That actually makes me want to talk about teens in particular, and this idea that, you know, it's very real for them, the feelings they feel around their bodies, how, especially in talking to teens, children, young adults with privilege, how, you know, you talk about live, laugh, love, which is hilarious. It's a little joke between me and Megan too, all those like sayings and everything's going to be okay. How, you know, it's more than just, you know, you get to be able to live, laugh, love in your body. We want to affirm them and take their feelings seriously. But also, it's important to me personally to set the stage for my kid understanding that there's a social justice issue here and that it's not just about them and their bodies, too. It feels to me sometimes like a tough line to walk. I don't know if you have any advice given your experience working with young people. So my 10 or so years has been like in college health. So the young folks that I talked to are, we, we call them late adolescents because yeah. a lot of people like to call them adults from my experience, <laughs> you know, still late adolescents. What I've actually found, a lot of people will talk about how terrible, you know, social media is for people and how they think about bodies. And I think that's a definite and because the critical thinking that comes, you know, sooner. I was actually working with a 12 year old who had started like a third wave feminist, you know, Instagram page with her friends so they could have more body political conversation. That's amazing. I know. It's like, what was I doing yeah. at 12? I was I was my not nose. doing that. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, how? And she was like, yeah. So we talked. And this was like 
2017 or 2016. Um, so before, you know, people were having a lot of these conversations. Um, so she just really wanted to talk about the difference in how, you know, folks of all different races and genders were, were treated and especially in their bodies. There are resources and language for people out there. And I find that young folks are more open to critically thinking. So we have like the almond palms who perhaps, you know, less, less open to talking about it. But I think with the context of social media, that there are, you know, concrete examples. You mentioned Lizzo from the book already um, and how, say, Lizzo is treated for drinking smoothies versus like Gwyneth for drinking smoothies. And so being able to like show those to like teens in juxtaposition and, you know, how one is fully acceptable or at least laughable when the other was a tragic event for a lot of yeah. people on the internet. Yeah. And just asking why. So that's what I'll do. I like to tell or I like to say that I don't tell people what to think. I tell, you know, teens, I hope I am, you know, showing them how to think and then they can go on and do whatever it is that they're going to do. But just understanding, you know, I talk about bodies as we are inherently political. A lot of people will say, like, you know, I don't not into that or whatever it is. Like, we go outside. Like, people are making assumptions regardless of whether or not we want to be political or whatever it is. And so, yeah, how do we just have that in context and how, you know, it's not always like my bias towards somebody, but it's just, you know, my existence. So how do we give our, you know, kids, students, context for just knowing that and whatever is happening with them and their bodies is not their body. That's the problem. Um, you know, it's other things. If you're getting these messages, it's not because of you. <laughs> like, don't think that's you. Let's talk about these in context. And so hopefully that has some of that critical thinking that that 12-year-old client <laughs> once had. Yeah. And I think some people may have a hard time understanding that race is at the center of this. But it is. And I really hope that people will be willing to hear and understand that because I think understanding race's role in our relationship to our bodies is absolutely critical to being able to do this kind of work, both for yourself and for your kids. Your book is a great way to kind of explore that and start to understand more and then jump off and to do other research and dig in deeper. I always like to add that it's not a hard read also, because what you just said can sound really hard. Yeah, I guess. But, <laughs> did I <laughs> right, make it sound not fun? Are, yeah. So for people who it's, you know, new to and perhaps brand new, um, I wrote the book so people actually get to the end. <laughs> it's not yeah. that, like you read the intro and you're done or listen to the intro of the audiobook. But yes, so those conversations I really think are digestible, pun, but also, you know, accessible. Yes. People aren't left you know, so angry or defensive about these things. Yeah. I think you did a yeah. great job in that. And I think also, you know, you have a reason that you explained in the beginning about why you don't lean too hard on data. But actually, that made it a really accessible read for me because you were talking about all these like real life stories. And that makes it so much more concrete and emotional and relatable than just hearing numbers, especially when the numbers are problematic. But yes, I agree with you. Yes. I loved every minute of it. I laughed a couple of times in the book. So I feel like that. And I listened to the audiobook, which I just find is wonderful. And you read the book, which gives an even greater connection to everything that you're sharing. 
I would like to leave with like a little bit of, if you're open to it, guidance, advice about how we can, like as we're working through our individual relationships with diet and body image, how can we like alongside that care for the community at large, especially like our black, brown and LGBTQ plus communities? One thing that I've come across and has gotten better is just the defensiveness, like lessening the defensiveness when we're listening to fat folks and like understanding that the reason that we're not listening to fat folks is everything to do with how, you know, we view fat bodies in this country and the assumptions we make. And so listening to the experience. So first of all, you know, listening and finding, you know, seeking folks out on social media, that's like initially, I find an easier, like, way to open up conversations, um, but also centering, you know, folks, if you're, you know, planning events or reading books together or whatever it is that you're, you know, you're doing, being really conscious of who is centered in those conversations and who you're listening to. When you bring people in, you also have to be willing to listen and allow them to find the center that they want to occupy and listen, because it wasn't shocking, but maybe it will be for some people to hear, like, <laughs> you were invited to lots of things. Sharon mm-hmm. <laughs> named a book. Like, you were on lots of panels and lots of discussions, and then you were managed mm-hmm. to the point where they wanted you to look like you were saying, <laughs> bringing your message, but actually you were being confined and confined and confined until you were just regurgitating or supporting their message. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to be careful of that. Like, if you're really going to open up, really open up, people. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great point to like, when are we talking? <laughs> do we always need to be talking or do we need to be you know, talking to our therapist about the feelings that come up? I'm going to speak somewhere about weight stigma and fat phobia in medicine. And like the initial response was to like bring in like an obesity researcher to like counter everything that I was going to say. Um, And yeah, it's great. It's great. I don't think that's happening, which is good. But yes, just the feelings, you know, like what could, you know, people have done with those feelings that came up when they learned I was going to have, you know, talk about weight stigma and racism, like they could have taken a nap um, instead of getting. Uh, so yes, being <laughs> being prepared. I totally recommend uh, folks who are interested in body stuff also reading Deshaun Harrison's uh, Belly of the Beast. That opens up, it's a shorter read, a lot of conversations about bodies and prepares people, you know, to talk about queerness and fatness and blackness, which is great. So yes, looking at who you're listening to, perhaps way before inviting folks in, like you already said, being open um, and knowing where to put feelings is great. But also introducing those things and those reads to kids earlier. I had, yeah, a friend of mine, her daughter, seven, uh, was learning about multisyllabic words. And she gave her kid my book to find the multisyllabic words. That's awesome. That's so right. smart. And I got the, so it was like problematized and pathologized. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, look, so we have to talk about those those words. And I was like, wow, that I love this so very much. That's um, such a smart way to start introducing texts that you might feel scared or have feelings about 
introducing to your kids, you know, giving them another context that they can just kind of absorb it. It's kind of like what we say about cooking, honestly, mm. where it's like, you know, just let them be in there and like touch the broccoli and mm-hmm. touch the beans and play with it and smell that like sauce that you love, that you grew up with, that they're like, what is that? I don't like sauce, you know, and just like kind of be around it all to start absorbing it. It kind of sets the stage. Yeah. I love that. Jessica, is there anything that we didn't ask you about that you want to speak about, like speaking towards our our audience, parents? Have you already talked about the American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines for weight in kids? We haven't yet. I feel like it could be a whole episode, but I would love if you even just want to give us a few few minutes of thought about it, because I know it's heavy. Uh, Pun not intended. (laughs) Not intended, actually. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's like multiple episodes for for parents. Incredibly briefly, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with its, quote, childhood obesity guidelines. Um, And, uh, you know, it could be a whole conversation about how I don't think that the definitions of obesity are real. They're social constructs, et cetera, et cetera. Anyhow, uh, basically, we should start putting kids as young as two on diets when they enter teens. We can think about weight loss drugs yeah. and weight loss surgery in their teens. And from my deep dive, there is acknowledgement. Like in the end, it's like limitations of this, you know, position paper. There's no data. <laughs> limitations. Uh, there's no long-term studies. Yeah. Limitations. We don't know what will actually happen to kids. Other, I mean, I can tell you they will develop eating disorders who are told about basically dieting techniques as young as two. There's a lot there in the whys and hows, but really what it shows, you know, us slash the world is that medicine does not care about the safety of children at all, the safety of chubby children at all because they're acknowledging there's no research, but we should still do these things that are incredibly harmful. We need to start caring for all kids together because that because we want other people to care about ours also. Mm-hmm. So we're in this together and I just think it's a compelling read from that context. It kind of starts to open up your sense of what it means to fight for justice for everybody. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us today. It was great to be here and talk with you. Stacey, I loved chatting with Jessica. Uh, One thing that Jessica, she talks about this in the book, but it also bubbled up in this conversation with her for me as well Is like, we are three years into the pandemic, uh, which also means we're almost three years into the, the racial reckoning, if you will, of summer 2020. And I can't help but feel like we're not in a better place. Maybe we're in a worse place. I hope that it doesn't sound somber. I hope it's a rallying cry. Yeah. And there's something for me, you know, we asked the question about, like, how do we work through our own issues around diets and our bodies Mm -hmm. and also help those among us? And there's something actually, like, inspiring for me, both about Jessica's book and her work uh, elsewhere, where this idea of like oppression for one group, whether it's women birthing people, whether it's trans, um, whether it's black or brown folks, is actually like the beginning of oppression for everyone. And like you said, 
caring for not just, we can't just continue to just care for our kids because it doesn't actually make them any safer. It just mentally makes us think that we're in a better place. So even if we're ending in sort of like a somber place, it's actually like, because we're inspired and we are back in the questioning of like, okay, what's, where are we at now? What are we going to do next? Big energy this year. (laughs) Starting (laughs) spring spring 2023 let's like really go out there and make a difference and let's try to have jessica back to talk more about the american academy of pediatrics yes guidelines yes like i think that would be really great yeah let's take it to our community throw to our community i want to check in with them (laughs) see how they're doing uh we hope that you join us there if not join for free at didn't i just feed you.com backslash community there you can also find all the details about becoming a supporting member of the podcast and getting some bonus episodes meal plans recipes direct access to us follow us on instagram too we are at didn't i just feed you a humongous thank you to our producer, Samantha Gatsik. I love you, Sam. I'm Stacy. And I'm Megan. Stay sane and well fed. Until next time. Be sure to subscribe to Didn't I Just Feed You wherever you're listening. And don't forget to rate and review.